Hello and welcome to Pin Drop World's News, the show where each week we spin the globe, drop a pin on a different country, and take a look at the big issues facing it. I'm AJ Camacho, your host, and on this edition of Pin Drop, we'll be bringing you something a bit different. We'll be discussing something that's not quite a country, Iran's so-called axis of resistance. This refers to no single actor, but rather a complex network of militias across the Middle East, from Hamas in the Palestinian territories, all the way to Houthi rebels in Yemen, all linked by some degree of relation and cooperation with the Islamic Republic of Iran. Most centrally, we will examine what role this network will likely play regarding the ongoing Israel-Gaza war. Pindrop co-producers Nick Castillo and Diego Austin will be speaking with the New Lines Institute's Faisal Ikhtani for his view of these militias and how they, as well as Iran itself, operate in the Middle East and figure into the Israel-Gaza war. Then I'll rejoin them for a panel where we'll further discuss how exactly we should think about this network. But first, what exactly is the Axis of Resistance? The term came into use to mock George W. Bush for his Axis of Evil description of hostile countries like North Korea and Iran. States like these and their terrorist allies constitute an Axis of Evil, arming to threaten the peace of the world. Listeners are likely familiar with its most famous members, Hamas almost certainly the best known of these military groups, has spent the last two months engaged in a war with the state of Israel, a war which is arguably the most destructive violence between Israelis and Palestinians since the Israeli state's creation in 1948. The attack that launched this current round of violence, the terror attacks on October 7th, likely could not have taken place without Iranian money and arms. Indeed, Iran may have even trained Hamas militants before the attack. But Hamas is only one of many militias that receive support from the Islamic Republic. In southern Lebanon, Iran has funded and armed a militant political organization called Hezbollah since the 1980s. Like Hamas, Hezbollah has fought multiple wars with Israel. In Yemen, Iran has sponsored the Houthi movement, which in 2014 overthrew the Yemeni government and has fought a brutal civil war in Yemen ever since. Throughout Iraq and Syria, Iran backs a series of smaller militias who, to an extent that can be hard to determine sometimes, rely on and take marching orders from Tehran. How did Iran develop this network? Well, the current Iranian regime came into power in 1979, when a mass revolution brought down the regime of the U.S.-backed Shah, a monarchy, who had grown deeply repressive and unpopular. In the ensuing months, the radical Shia Islamist Imam Ruhollah Khomeini and his supporters violently consolidated power into a new regime. The freshly minted Islamic Republic nearly instantly found itself in a hostile climate. In the most immediate sense, it faced a war with Saddam Hussein's Iraq, which at the time was backed by the United States. In the wider view, However, Iran was the only Shia Persian country in a mostly Arab region dominated by Sunnis. Its particularly revolutionary brand of political Islam, Shia, expansionary, and anti-Western, was the complete antithesis of the secular regimes that had dominated much of the Arab world for decades and was completely incompatible with the more Islamist but still Sunni and conservative monarchies of the Persian Gulf such as Saudi Arabia. Iran found a way to expand its influence abroad, however, despite this. Periods of instability, when states were weak and internal conflict high, provided the Islamic Republic with an opening, especially in countries with Shia communities that had traditionally been kept out of political power. Iran, in these areas, was able to prove expert at mixing local grievances with its own arms and organizational skills. The greatest example of this is likely Hezbollah in Lebanon. In the early 1980s, Lebanon descended into war. 
to pursue the Palestinian Liberation Organization, Israel invaded the south of Lebanon as the country descended into sectarian violence between Shia, Sunni, Christian, and Palestinian factions. The fact that Israel invaded the south of Lebanon, a predominantly Shia region, gave Tehran the opportunity to all at once establish a foothold abroad, defend a Shia community, improve its credentials to the Islamic world as a force that could push back against Israel and, by extension, the West. In 1982, a group of Lebanese Shias who sympathized with the Islamic Republic's ideology of revolutionary Shia Islamism founded Hezbollah as a militant group. In the ensuing years, money, guns, and around 1,500 Iranian advisors flooded into Lebanon from Iran, the results being the creation of what is likely the most powerful non-state actor in the Middle East. Hezbollah would go on to fight the Israel Defense Forces until their final withdrawal from Lebanon in 2000, in what many in Lebanon viewed as a historic victory against the Israelis. Today, Hezbollah sits just above Israel's northern border, with an inventory of roughly 100,000 rockets. The organization's leader, Hassan Nasrallah, claims that it has the same number of individual fighters, although this is likely an overstatement. Iran would carry out similar organizational efforts in Iraq following the 2003 American invasion, and in Yemen following the 2014 outbreak of war, each time using instability abroad to build its power. The Islamic regime has put these organizations to use in ways that shifted the course of entire countries. Take, for instance, the Syrian civil war, a war that began in 2011 as part of the broader Arab Spring against many of the most oppressive regimes in the region. The protests against Syrian dictator Bashar al-Assad, himself part of the Shia al-White sect that had long dominated the Syrian state and military, quickly devolved into open civil war. At Iranian insistence, Hezbollah came to the aid of the Syrian regime, an ally of Tehran, providing as many as 10,000 additional fighters and helping to secure the regime. Most analysts view Hezbollah's role in the conflict as being one of the most consequential factors in what currently appears to be a victory for Assad and the regime. This begs the question, if Iran has used its axis of resistance in the past to shape the Middle East in times of crisis, what role might it play during this current Israel-Hamas war? What role will it play long term? What's the best way to understand this network? As a radical Islamist movement based on ideology and identity? Or as a raw Iranian power project? To answer these questions, we now take you to our guest interview with Faisal Itani of the New Lines Institute. Faisal Itani is a Middle East policy analyst currently serving as the Senior Director of Future Frontiers Portfolio at the New Lines Institute, where he also co-founded the New Lines magazine. Before joining New Lines, he was a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council working on Mideast issues. He's written extensively on Middle East security, politics, and energy for various publications. He's also an adjunct professor of Middle East politics at both Georgetown University and George Washington University. Faisal Itani, welcome to Pindrop, and thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. So I'd like to start off with sort of setting the scene um, for our listeners in the early 80s. Um, following the 1979 revolution, we have the uh, creation of the Islamic Republic of Iran. In the early 1980s, what is Tehran's foreign policy approach? What is Tehran's view of the Middle East? And how does Iran end up sponsoring this sort of vast network of militias that we currently see across the region? Yeah, there's a long arc here, but let's start with what they must have been thinking the day after the revolution. Uh, like any revolutionary, the thing that they were most worried about was counter-revolution. So they wanted to protect what they had done, what they had built as a regime however small at the time. This is important from a foreign policy perspective because this is also when they formed what would later become the IRGC. Uh, and at the same time, even though they were still in a very delicate phase, uh, they had this kind of uh, vision or ambition of spreading the revolution beyond Iran's borders. Uh, and that didn't just mean to Shia populations. They saw it as a kind of universal Islamic revolution that should be spread to all the countries of, well, all Muslim countries, rather, 
Uh, so these were their two priorities. It seems like they're competing priorities, but really they managed to intersect because of the institution building the regime was doing uh, at home. Uh, now, if we fast forward a couple of years to the early 1980s, first of all, the kind of most salient thing in Iran, the Iranian regime's life at this moment is the war with Saddam Hussein, the eight-year war that's going to you know, kill hundreds of thousands of Iranians and seriously challenge the survival of the republic. Uh, but at the same time, as they were fighting this fight, uh, they had, uh, if you will, like a kind of proxy project going on uh, in Lebanon at this time. This is where they found quickest success for a number of circumstances because there was a big Shia population with historic ties to Iran, because Israel was in Lebanon, and therefore there was all the more reason to mobilize people there. So they sent some IRGC people in Lebanon and created what, of course, what we know, know to be Hezbollah. Uh, they also did forge deep ties with uh, factions in Iraqi Shia politics. Uh, but because Saddam Hussein was so adept at kind of cracking down and monopolizing power, many of them were actually shifted to uh, Iran itself. And we're not going to hear from them for a long while, far into the future, I think beyond the scope of your question, uh, when we get to 2003. Uh, a lot of this is opportunistic, right? So the Iranians looked and saw where there were grievances and when there was a kind of fertile population, Shia population that was receptive to these ideas. Um, and the same thing happened in uh, Iraq, really, and uh, if much later in Yemen. So there is a pattern, there is a model. Uh, that's how it started. So I'd like to ask two sort of questions to, to clarify. Uh, firstly, could you explain for our listeners what the IRGC is and what role it plays outside of Iran's borders? Yeah, so the IRGC, the Islamic Revolutionary uh, Guard Corps, uh, started as what what we see in middle, many Middle East countries, uh, which is a security force that is not so much an army, it's a kind of Praetorian Guard or, or a regime protection force. So its aim is to use intelligence, coercion, to make sure that the regime uh, is, uh, is safe. Uh, and uh, that, that uh, preliminary or initial agenda is expanded in the case of the IRGC in, uh, in Iran because the eight years of war with Iraq basically mobilized every resource the Iranians could put together and in the eight-year war that followed, the IRGC went from becoming merely a regime protection force to that most powerful military force in the country uh, with its own uh, army, its own navy, eventually control of the ballistic missile program in, in Iran. So it's important because not only is it really the ultimate shield of the regime at home, but it's also the, the main power projection tool. Uh, outside of Iran proper. The next thing I sort of wanted to follow up on from your, your first statement is just trying to get at the sectarian element of this. From the West, the rhetoric is always Iran is an aggressor. It's meddling in all these countries it doesn't belong in. And I think we can see the, the basis for that idea. But uh, something you hinted at was the degree to which Iran is drawing on genuine grievances abroad. And can you sort of tease out what Shia versus Sunni, that divide has to do with this? Yes. Yeah, so if if you're Iran or if you're really any kind of minority power, because the Shia are minority in, in the Islamic world, uh, you have to kind of play this double game all the time. Uh, one side of the game is where are there other aggrieved Shia populations that who, who's, with whom our ideology might resonate, uh, that have maybe some religious learning uh, in Iran or from Iranian clerics. Basically, where can we exploit those grievances against the regimes, which almost always are Sunni regimes uh, or some variation, but not Shia. Uh, so they, they've played that card effectively in Lebanon, in Iraq, in Yemen, but uh, here's the double-edged sword on the other side of the equation. Every time you play that card as a minority power, you're galvanizing resistance against you from the majority regimes and the majority population. Uh, so you get to play the Shia card because it's effective, but there's always a cost. So if all you ever do is play the sectarian card, you're going to find yourself boxed out of the region pretty quickly. 
uh, and people will dislike you, all, you know, Sunni populations will dislike you, whatever. So that's where this idea of this axis of resistance against the West, against Israel, this is an idea that's popular among a lot of Sunni populations as well. And to the extent that the Iranians can tap into that, or at least use it to kind of dilute the sectarian backlash against them, they will do it. Um, Hamas in Gaza actually, you know, of course, this is war going on, so this is very pertinent. Hamas in Gaza is an excellent example of this because Palestinian Muslims are Sunnis, they're not Shia, uh, and they don't want anything to do with that, you know, Vilas Fakir, you know, Iran's basically very eccentric uh, reading of Shia politics. People in Gaza and the West Bank are not interested in this for obvious reasons. What they are interested in is support uh, for their struggle against the Israelis. And here is where the Iranians have been quite clever in that as the Sunni Arab powers receded from the equation in the fight against Israel, they took its place. And that has earned them some currency among Sunnis. But, and this is why the answers are always long, after 2003 in particular, the Sunni-Shia conflict after the invasion of Iraq really exploded. So that's made everything more complicated for the Iranians than it otherwise would have been. So all these things are kind of pushing against each other in different directions. Um, and this is why it's a strategic environment that's very complicated if you're, if you're Iran and there isn't one single solution to all of these problems. I'm glad you went into the state of the situation with Hamas because we were going to transition next to the acts of resistance in the context of the war in Gaza. Um, so there has been a lot of speculation about the extent of Iran's involvement in the planning of Hamas's October 7 attack. Iran has been reluctant to claim responsibility. Uh, there was a big article in the Wall Street Journal though, that claimed Iran trained the Hamas militants. So to what extent do you think Iran was involved in the October 7th attack, if at all? Do you think they had any prior knowledge of it? You know, at first, uh, I'll confess that at first, I did, I did think they had it. They had prior knowledge of it. Um, I, at the very least, I thought they had helped train Hamas in some of these tactics, and I do believe that. But I did believe at the beginning that they had prior knowledge of their operation. The reason I'm doubting it now, doubting my initial position, is because of the kind of very haphazard, uh, you know, scramble by the Iranians and Hezbollah uh, to see what are we going to do about the situation. And it, very, it became very clear to me that they hadn't really prepared for it um, and that they had to play catch up to the circumstances. Uh, and, uh, and those circumstances were not very favorable to them from an Iranian perspective, of course. Now, regardless of whether or not Hamas thinks this is success, uh, we did see that Iran and Hezbollah have been pretty restrained uh, and, uh, and that there was a little bit of confusion at the beginning over what exactly to do. Uh, they, if they had known about the operation, its scope, its target, etc., there was no way they wouldn't have expected this kind of very, very serious, dramatic Israeli backlash, because after all, that was the point. So I don't know. Uh, I'm questioning my initial, my initial analysis. And building on that, in general, how independent is the decision-making process of access of resistance groups from Tehran? Are they, like, allowed to make high-level decisions like that without Tehran's approval or even to dissent from what Tehran wants? Oh, so look, the answer, these groups are very different from one another and the relationship with Iran is different. Uh, it's not, they're not the same. So you have groups that are, for example, Kataib, uh, Hezbollah in Iraq or, or Hezbollah proper in, in Lebanon. Uh, these groups are actually Iranian proxies. Now, that, that doesn't mean they don't have any room for tactical maneuver. They want to launch small operations, you know, things of that sort. They can do that stuff. Uh, but stuff that starts a major war, uh, no, you don't just wake up as the Secretary General of Hezbollah and decide that that's what you're going to do. Now, it doesn't mean these guys are not respected or they don't have a voice at the table. They do. Uh, and they are respected. But they're part of the Iranian uh, security apparatus. I mean, they, they pledge allegiance to the Supreme Leader. Uh, and they sit in on those meetings and they're an important voice in the room, but they're not the decision makers uh, when it comes to the high level strategic stuff. Uh, but then you have groups like uh, Hamas. That's different. I mean, yeah, you can label them access resistance because I guess they are, um, but they are not part of the Iranian command and control structure. They're, 
They're just not. Uh, they have Hamas uh, as a Palestinian militia, as a very, very specific set of circumstances that really are not replicated anywhere else. And they don't have open supply lines to the Iranians, and they don't have any ideological ideological connection to them. Uh, so Hamas is different. Um, it's true that they rely on Iran for some of their funding and so on and so forth. Uh, but they have a little more legal. It's like they have their own such specific circumstances of their own that they have the right, they've earned the right to have that leeway. And ideologically, they're not aligned with the Iranians. Um, so I would think, yeah, Hamas is, is able to make a decision like that. Yes. Whether they did it without their knowledge or not, different question. But I don't think they need permission, if that was, if that makes sense. Okay. Like and to... you, yeah, go ahead, Nick. Yeah, I just wanted to maybe, because I think we are going to have a, a good amount of time for, for these sort of subtopics. Could you speak a little bit about Hamas's relationship with the Islamic Republic? Because there's been a lot of reporting in the past decade about small falling outs, um, you know, in, uh, in relations getting worse and then getting better. You know, uh, we've seen, you know, the, the story of the PLO is one of the big factors in getting the PLO to engage in Oslo is that they lost the Soviet Union. As a as a major sponsor, so you know how important is um, the Islamic Republic for Hamas? You know uh, uh, what are the relationships like? Because you've already sort of hit upon the fact how you know Hamas is not Shia, uh, Hamas is shaped by Palestinian circumstances. So so what what makes Hamas special? I guess um, compared to other militias that the Iranians back. Okay, so we talked about the sectarian element, although that's probably not the most important one. Um, look for Hamas. Uh, because Hamas has is in a very restrictive environment, they don't at any one point in time have a lot of options, right? Um, and they're kind of like the PLO in that respect, is that they're so boxed in by their strategic circumstances is they have a very, very limited number of things they could do at any one point in time. They could do what the PLO did, sure, even if, I mean, regard, regardless of whether the ideology says it or not. Uh, but to Hamas, uh, they've calculated that to do that is a capitulation and the end of the struggle for Palestinian rights. And, you know, whether you like Hamas or not, you can look at the past 20 years and see that's probably objectively true, uh, in that the PLO was not able to gain the things that it had hoped to gain. Uh, so what else do, where else does that leave Hamas? Um, they have the military option, which they have never given up, uh, but they need sponsors because they're poor and, and weak. Um, at any one point in time, Hamas is courting at least two or three sponsors. It doesn't limit itself to one supporter, simply because Hamas needs to get whatever it can, and they don't have the luxury of choosing where they're going to get it. Uh, so for the longest time, especially when Hamas was first coming up, a lot of the Gulf countries, you know, including Saudi Arabia, were supporting it. Um, and then there was the Brotherhood in Egypt supporting it. Uh, and then the general um, direction of Arab, you know, high politics was away from this resistance movement, making some kind of deal with the Israelis to different degrees of friendliness, but in general saying that the military option should, should not be on the table and Hamas is a nuisance because it keeps embarrassing us and with, with these wars um, that make us look bad for being at peace with the Israelis. Uh, so having seen that Hamas goes around after it got elected in 2005 or six, I forgot, started doing these kind of shopping runs in the region of, you know, with their hands out, please give us money. Um, and uh, I believe this is like controversial and I don't want to get like conspiratorial, but I, off the top of my head, I'll say uh, the Qataris and the Turks have had their turn at this. Um, but Iran is the single probably most important, uh, most important element. So they go where, where they can get what they need. They don't have a lot of options. I mean, Gaza is a tiny piece of territory and it's blockaded by Israel and Egypt and there really isn't much they can do. They need the money. Uh, so they go where they can get it. It's very opportunistic. And uh, if it's Iran, great. If it's not Iran, that's fine too. I'm curious um, to ask, how much overlap is there between the axis of resistance and the Captagon trade? Because, um, of course, this has been a major source of funding for the Assad regime, and he has been known to use um, Hezbollah to help him do this. I'm wondering to what extent Iran and maybe other militia groups are involved in this, and does that money make its way to groups like Hamas? So the question of uh, where Iranian money comes from and where it goes is very, very controversial. 
And one of the reasons it's controversial is because it's tied up, of course, with the policy debate about sanctions and removal of sanctions and what happens if the Iranians make more money here. Does that mean they spend more money doing those other things we hate? Uh, you know, at the end of the day, money is fungible. So I guess if it makes money from one source, it can spend more on another. Uh, but to my knowledge, to my knowledge, um, that money uh, seems to be mostly going to uh, militias, uh, whether Hezbollah or other militias, and the Assad regime proper. Uh, and I don't know whether it is even of the volume that would change Iran's financial position, to be honest with you. Uh, but I will say I'm a little bit out of my depth because my knowledge sort of ends there. Uh, we have an analyst at New Lines. Her name is Caroline Rose. And literally, this is her entire thing. So uh, if you want to read about everything about this Captagon trade and where the money is going, etc., I recommend, very much recommend you, uh, you look at her work, Caroline Rose. Uh, but uh, for me, I just have a very kind of one-dimensional point of view of it. Uh, having said that, like I said, money is fungible, money in, money out. Of course, the more money you make, the more you can spend on stuff that America doesn't like. So one of the big questions that everyone's sort of um, talking about over the course of, of the last month is whether or not Hezbollah is going to fully um, throw its weight into the war, right? You wrote a, a recent short article for New Lines where, you know, titled Why Hezbollah is Holding Back from Entering on the Israel-Palestine War and where you, where you sort of discuss this question. Um, so can you explain Hezbollah's current view of the war and what are the calculations being made by Hassan Nasrallah and, and the other big, um, the other leadership within Hezbollah? And is that calculation similar or different to um, other actors in the region? Because we've seen there's sort of this low simmer of, of, you know, a missile war going on between the Israelis and Hezbollah. But you can compare that to maybe the Houthis, who have actually really stepped up um, in terms of launching um, attacks at southern Israel and uh, ship hijackings that, that we might touch upon in, in a question or two. So what, what's the view for Hezbollah and how is that different um, in terms of the other militia in the region? OK, so you have to understand the kind of balance that existed before October 7 between Hezbollah and the Israelis. Um, Hezbollah and the Israelis have, of course, fought a series of wars. Uh, Israel occupied Lebanon, fought Hezbollah for 18 years. And then uh, there was that uh, very devastating war in 2006 between uh, uh, Israel and Hezbollah. And the whole aim, or actually the end point of these wars, was to say uh, that there's a kind of balance of terror between Hezbollah and Israel. Uh, and that if one side escalates, the other side will, out, will over-escalate, and then it will lead to another war. Uh, a war that would certainly bother and endanger much of Israel, but really would lead to the crushing of uh, Lebanon itself, uh, which is where Hezbollah's power base lives and therefore greatly complicate Hezbollah's life politically uh, because it would turn much of the country, or so the thinking goes, against Hezbollah. So Hezbollah understands that this is the Israeli deterrent effect, and the Israelis have been communicating it full stop, uh, sorry, nonstop since the war began warning Hezbollah, warning Lebanon, and so on. Uh, so we know to begin with Hezbollah is a little bit boxed in, and uh, it looks at this war in Gaza and from an ideological perspective. This is a major war between Hamas, well, a member of the Axis of Resistance, and Israel, uh, and there are tens of thousands of Palestinians being killed. So ideologically speaking, what is this militia for if not for this kind of thing? Right. So uh, isn't this why we have 150,000 rockets and why we do this and why we do that? Um, so the, the question is being asked, including among their own followers. It's a bit of an embarrassing question uh, and difficult one to, to really come to terms with. Uh, but the answer, I, when I wrote that article, this is really the beginning of this operation. And my point was Hezbollah doesn't need to respond to this until it knows what it actually looks like. Uh, how the Israelis perform, what's going to happen to the Palestinians, etc. Uh, in the meantime, there's no, from a strategic perspective, no interest in answering and showing your cards and potentially escalating something. Uh, things have happened since then, obviously. Many more people have died and destruction is very high. Uh, so the answer to the question of, isn't this what the militia is for? Uh, the answer, as it turns out, is no. That's not what it's for. Um, it's for something more specific. Uh, it's partly to deter an attack on Lebanon and 
Hezbollah's constituency. Uh, but uh, obviously, it's for something also, it's an Iranian priority. Uh, and the question for the Iranians who actually built Hezbollah and control it is, is this where we want to fire our shot, right? Is this how we want to spend our ammunition? Uh, defending Gaza in a war that Hamas is probably going to lose in strict military terms anyway. And uh, that war is going to finish. And do we want to, you know, do we want to ex- expend Hezbollah uh, just to make a point to the Israelis? You know, and then where do we stand in the Levant? We've lost Hamas, Gaza, and we've lost Lebanon and Hezbollah. That's not a good idea. Uh, so the Iranians obviously decided to withhold Hezbollah. Uh, now, what you're talking about from Yemen and the Houthis and stuff like that, this is a much looser, like you have to understand Syria, even Iraq, Yemen. This is kind of like the Wild West of the Israel-Iran conflict where you can kill people and there's no really strict deterrent. There's no very high price for it. The other guy can come and kill your people. And really, life just goes on. Uh, Places like Lebanon are subject to a much stricter Israeli calculus because the Israelis cannot have Hezbollah thinking that they could do whatever they want to the Israelis. They have to know that there's a very heavy price for escalating against Israel there. Yemen, this is manageable stuff. I mean, uh, the Houthis are a little also, from my understanding, to be unscientific about it, a little more unhinged than Hezbollah in the, in the decisions that they make about escalation and stuff like that. We've seen them do it against the U.S. Navy, just crazy stuff that I wouldn't have expected, really. Um, but like I said, Yemen, Syria, Iraq, anything goes. Uh, Lebanon, not anything goes. The, the, the situation is more strictly controlled uh, because Hezbollah is much more dangerous and much more damaging potentially, to the Israelis. Um, and that's really the answer to your question, I believe, to the best of my capability. Do you think that's a legitimacy issue for Hezbollah long-term, that they, they, they're sitting out what is the biggest war between Israel and the Palestinians, you know, but in terms of death count, already far outpacing the Second Intifada? You know, I've asked myself this same question. Um, it's very complicated because... Hezbollah's last true moment of glory, like in the sense that no one really questioned whether it was glorious or not in Lebanon, was defeating the Israelis and pushing them out of Lebanon in 2000. That was a long time ago. It was 23 years ago. Uh, Since then, a lot of less kind of pristine, ideologically speaking, a lot of uglier things have happened in the Middle East. There was a civil war in Iraq. There was a civil war in Syria. And in both of those wars, Hezbollah's role was, you know, to cut through the OBS, to go to these places and kill Sunnis who were fighting incumbent Shia-dominated regimes. That changed Hezbollah. It changed the makeup of the, of the party. It changed the kind of people it recruits. It made it much more kind of uh, a coarse, like, sectarian party and less a kind of elitist ideological party. There's still a bit of both of these things, of course, but it did change Hezbollah. And it changed the way its constituency thought about it to the point that Hezbollah's constituency wants two things from Hezbollah, really, at core. It's, it wants protection from Israel, because it doesn't believe the state can protect them. Uh, and it wants the Shia sect to be the dominant political sect in the country of Lebanon. And both of these things rely on Hezbollah, right? Notice I didn't say anything about them, you know, liberating Palestine. Now, every, all these groups want to liberate Palestine from the Israelis, right? Uh, but there's one thing between, oh, that would be a nice thing to do, and another thing between thinking it's actually a good idea to try it. And all of them now understand this is a bad idea, except Hamas, but Hamas is completely different. But these guys, they know they don't have these options. So I would say, long run, it turns Hezbollah into a slightly different kind of party than what we, let's say, millennials and older grew up thinking it was. Uh, it's turned into something a little different now, but it still has uh, that place in Lebanese politics, a very important place, protecting the Shia from Israel and from internal rivals or enemies. And I think Hezbollah gets a pass for this one because I think the constituency will largely feel it spared them a war that they really couldn't afford. Don't forget Lebanon is in very, very bad shape politically and economically, and people don't want a war. Hating Israel is different than wanting a war. So uh, that's, I think they get a passport, frankly. Maybe regionally, certainly among the Palestinians, they won't. 
but that's a different story. And now we've already seen this war in Gaza have pretty significant regional implications from the axis of resistance and Iran. Uh, Iranian proxies have stepped up attacks on U.S. bases in Iraq and Syria. Uh, we've already talked about the Houthis and the, the situation on, on the Lebanese border. Uh, so do you think the continuation of the Israel-Hamas war will cause even further um, Iranian and axis of resistance escalation elsewhere in the region? To be honest with you, I actually don't. Um, mm -hmm. I think whenever you're in a war, uh, the, the situation is so extreme for everybody. And now it's not just the people there. Everybody's feeling this extremely and has extreme points of view about it, etc. Uh, but wars end, you know, and if you once you've seen enough of them, you're like, okay, I've seen this arc before. Every war is a little bit different, but they're all kind of the same and they all finish. And then most of us go back to whatever it is that's been taking up bandwidth uh, in, in our head otherwise. And that same thing if you're the leader of Iran uh, or if you're the leader of Hezbollah, you have other things to do and other worries and other things to take care of. So I think once we get through the very kinetic, you know, to put a kind of clinical term on it, once basically all the casualties and the killings slow down and uh, some kind of new normal or new abnormal, I guess, in Gaza's case, uh, settles in, then I think you'll see things de-escalate de a little bit. And uh, I think that's, incidentally, the other foreign powers to talk about, not just the axis of resistance, there's a whole slew of Arab states that have their own calculations about Israel. And we can talk about it separately if you like. Um, but those guys are also waiting for the war to end so that things will cool down a little bit and they can explore their options vis-a-vis uh, -vis Israel a little bit more. One take that I saw and, and why we aren't seeing so much Hezbollah or, or other activity is that it's sort of exposing the axis of resistance as not particularly ideological, but at its core, an Iranian power project, not about the Palestinians, not even so much about the Americans or the Israelis. Um, do you have an immediate reaction to that perspective? Yeah, I've, I've, I've read these perspectives every time there's a war. And to be honest with you, you can be both those things. Uh, everybody has an ideology, right? In the West, when we say ideology, we're really insinuating that the other person is crazy or an extremist. Uh, but we have ideologies too, uh, even though we're not aware of them all the time. Hezbollah, if the leadership of Hezbollah, they do believe in certain things. You may find them silly, but they, be, they believe in them. Um, the, Iran believes in them. All these like, kind of holdout groups really truly believe that you cannot accept Israel, that you have to keep fighting it till the day it just collapses under its own contradictions and, uh, and weaknesses. Uh, and that is an article of faith. They will never stop believing this. Now, what can they do at any one point in time? At the end of the day, if you're a proxy or if you're just a militia, militias don't decide the way the politics of the world works. Uh, we see this time and again. Uh, these militias have a boss and they may not always agree with the boss, but if they are wise, and well-connected, they will understand that the boss has constraints. You, as a nation state like Iran, you are always going to have more constraints than a, a militia because there's many, many, many more ways you can be hurt or harmed in this world than a militia can. Uh, and so they have to understand where their own authority and decision-making stops and where that of their patron uh, begins. And this is not incompatible with having ideologies. Hell, even the Iranians have an ideology. Uh, I'm also wondering, um, when I think about uh, regional implications, I'm not just thinking about military escalation, um, but also changes in, in politics. Um, I'm especially looking at Middle Eastern countries that have um, democracies where there are parties that are backed by Iran and even um, the axis of resistance, as in, you see in Iraq with the, the sort of PMF parties. Um, and the, Iraq is having uh, provincial elections in uh, like about three weeks. Um, and uh, I'm wondering if this this war in, in Gaza is going to create a sort of um, a trend that is favorable to the electoral victory of, of parties that are, are pro-Iran or pro-axis of resistance. Uh, so this, this kind of depends where you are. Um, Iraq is a much, the Shia political landscape in Iraq is very, very complicated. And 
uh, ideology, at least from my observations of that country, is not a great predictor of who is going to perform well in this or that election. Uh, there's usually seem to be much more parochial concerns. And when you have a Shia majority country, and bear with me because this is a bit of a delicate point, when you have a Shia majority country, uh, the sectarianism element of it doesn't really matter that much uh, because everybody's Shia. So you start to compete over policy, you know? And I, and I think for the last couple of Iraq elections, at least, we've seen this kind of competition over policy in the way you'd see in just any other country uh, because Iraq's problems go so far beyond, you know, sectarian problems, you have immense governance problems and economic problems and what have you. In Lebanon, it's different. Uh, in Lebanon, the Shia party, Hezbollah, is the vehicle for that sect's political aspirations. And they're going to vote for it no matter what. They're not going to vote for anybody else. As long as Hezbollah does the two things we talked about, protect them from Israel, protect them from internal rivals, they're going to get the vote. Uh, there was no meaningful Shia political competition in Lebanon, so I don't see that changing. Uh, in Yemen, of course, is not doesn't even fit the premises of, of your question. Um, if you're really interested in politics outside the axis of resistance proper, what you should probably be looking at is the states, the Arab states that were on their way to making peace with the Israelis until this happened, uh, especially Saudi Arabia, which is an immensely, immensely important country for many reasons that are obvious. Uh, they were not only on their way to making peace with the Israelis, they were basically making fun of or like poking fun at the Palestinians and the Palestinians' political aspirations and their complaints against the Israelis. Now, of course, this got jammed up. And uh, it's not easy now as an Arab power to go and say, I want to make peace with the Israelis. And I would venture to say that that's probably one of the reasons Hamas launched this attack. Uh, so that's an important geopolitical dimension to everything that's going on here. Well, there are a lot more subjects I'm sure we could get to if we had more time, but I think we're going to have to leave it there. Faisal Itani uh, of the New Lines Institute, thank you so much for joining us today. Howdy, folks, and welcome. It is time for the panel. We're recording it today from sunny Baltimore, Maryland, and I'm joined, of course, by the main producers of today's episode, Nick Castillo and Diego Austin. So, guys, I want to start with this. We had a really good interview this week, um, as we often do, <laughs> with Faisal Itani, um, at you know, New Line Institute and Magazine. And there, there's a lot to comb through there, as organized as it was. But what stood out to you the most? I'll start with you, Nick. What, did you, what, what struck you the most about the interview? Um, first off, I thought it was a really great interview. I really liked it a lot. I really enjoyed his characterization of the transformation of Hezbollah between the Lebanese Civil War in the 1980s, and mm -hmm. it dragged on into the 90s and even early 2000s, and what happened in Syria in the 2010s. Basically, Hezbollah fighting Israel in southern Lebanon, it's really like the first Arab army that is able to kick out the IDF of somewhere. Right. IDF withdraws from Lebanon finally in um, 2000, and the popular understanding was that Hezbollah fought them out, mm -hmm. which was like a huge legitimacy boost, really, really popular. You know, Hezbollah and you know this Iranian proxy could be framed as like, you know, finally doing what all the governments of the Arab world together had failed to do for decades. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's a lot of popular support for Hezbollah, and it, it, you know, maybe it could never have transcended the Shia box that it was in, um, but I think a lot of people around the region could legitimately look to it as this popular force. Um, that changes, Atani describes in the 2000s, ago, and they fight for Bashar al-Assad, mm -hmm. and they go kill lots of Sunnis, mm -hmm. right? So that makes it look as if it's a, it's a very cynical organization. Um, it's a specifically Shia organization, specifically tied to Iranian interests. Mm -hmm. And one of the cool things he talks about in the interview, um, Itani, is that this doesn't just change how the organization is perceived. It changes who chooses to join Hezbollah, how they choose to lead Hezbollah, right? Like um, who chooses to leave um, the organization. And so thinking about how that changes um, something like Hezbollah, I think was really, really interesting and really useful in terms of trying to predict their next moves and stuff like that. Yeah. And I wonder, because Iran did act kind of surprised, at mm -hmm. the same time as there was clear Iranian motivation for mm -hmm. something like an October 7th attack, I wonder if it's like a Henry II, Thomas Beckett type deal, mm -hmm. where Iran says something to Hamas, like, won't someone mid me, rid me of this troublesome bishop? Yeah. You know, like, oh, is Israel, Saudi normalization's a problem, and then Hamas chooses to be like, Okay, you'll have our backs when we do this then. 
-hmm. possibility. I don't know. But either way, regardless of the planning leading up to this, what does the presence of the axis of resistance mean for the prospects of the region as a whole? I know that's a very broad question, so let's just talk about conflict in the short term. Hezbollah has not fully gotten involved yet. Yeah. Is there prospects for that changing, or is, is that uh, the impetus for I, something else? I don't think Hezbollah is going to get involved. Um, I, I think that on a big decision like that, like launching and like opening a new front mm -hmm. in Israel, um, I think they would have to get approval from Tehran, and I think Tehran knows that if Hezbollah does that, they're going to get turned into glass. Like, it's not going to end very well for them. <laughs> and, like, and, like, and, like, and, like, Joe Biden, I think, would probably help that happen. Yeah. Um, and so Tehran, Tehran doesn't want to lose all their, like, like, the leverage they have there that much. Like, Hamas is probably going to get overthrown, um, it seems. Uh, they don't want Hezbollah to have vastly reduced military capabilities as well. So mm -hmm. I don't think it's going to happen. As for your broader question, as for what the axis of resistance means for broader stability, I mean, I think it obviously really escalates the prospect of war because it's, um, it, it's very convenient for Iran. It's kind of like Russia's Wagner forces in a way, in the sense that they can um, cause um, like military actions right. abroad without doing it themselves and without being like culpable for that in, in that like more direct sense. So what I'd say too, I think, is you don't even have to necessarily look to the future um, to talk about the destabilization caused by the way the Iranians are approaching the region. Because one of the things Itani said that stuck in my mind is he characterized Syria and Iraq as sort of the wild west of the conflict between the Iranians and the Israelis and Americans. If you look at these countries, people get killed constantly. There are bombs being sent constantly. These are states that really don't have their own airspace. They really don't control mm -hmm. who enters and, and leaves their borders. The Iranians bomb targets in Iraq at a, you know, uh, on a monthly basis as well. Mm -hmm. and, and people die, you know? And there's no repercussions ever. And these are sort of fundamentally, they're not gonna be stable and they're not going to be um, secure and safe states. When you have, you know, a, a foreign actor, whether it's the Israelis or the uh, Iranians, mm -hmm. you know, funding militias there, exerting influence in a really, really direct, really critical sense. Um, politics can't continue as usual. You know, you're not going to get, you know, you, you, guns are everywhere in these countries. Um, it's a really chaotic situation. And it's different than, say, Lebanon, where because Hezbollah is such a strong actor, you can't really just hit Hezbollah randomly mm -hmm. the way you can hit, you know, a, a munitions depot in Syria mm -hmm. because it's sort of out of bounds of the conflict. Because right. Hezbollah can hit back really hard in a way that, like, some random militia in Iraqi Kurdistan can't. Mm -hmm. yeah. And let's talk about that real quick, too, in one particular instance, because the, the news in the United States was consumed for a brief period of time when Qassam Soleimani was killed. Um, obviously, the head of the major Iranian militia um, in Iraq at the time. But after his assassination, Nick, as we've discussed before this panel, he had a replacement who had quite a different yeah. approach. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, sure. This is interesting stuff, and it has pretty big implications for the way the individual militias in the Middle East act. Because the thing about Soleimani is that he's actually a really um, unique figure in, in the Middle East. V he's Iranian, um, he's Persian, and he's very, very popular um, within the Arab world, right? Um, he spoke fluent Arabic, which is a little rare um, for Iranian policymakers. He was sort of a Che Guevara-like figure, almost sort of folk hero status in a lot of countries, especially among the Shias of, of Lebanon and Iraq. And he had really, really close personal relationships with a lot of the people who ran these militias. He was the one who was really spearheading a lot of the development of the axis of resistance. Mm. His replacement as the head of the IRGC, a guy named um, Ghani, or, or Kani, as it's sometimes spelled or, or pronounced, I'm not sure exactly what, what sort of the proper way to do it. He's not um, that kind of figure. Right? He's not as popular, he's not as well-known, and I, I've heard that he does not even speak fluent Arabic. Mm. So what that meant on the ground, according to some analysts I, I was reading in preparation for this episode, is that a lot more individual decision-making went out to the individual militias themselves. And that really matters when you're talking about, okay, did Hezbollah um, choose itself not to enter the war? Did Hamas right. get, the, get a real strong okay from Tehran before launching the 10-7 attack? Like, are, are, are the Houthis asking the Iranians before they, they you know, um, uh, take a ship? Yeah. Uh, the, the Houthis probably not because everyone sort of agrees that they're wild cards more or less. Yeah. But I think if you're talking about who's really making the decisions, um, the fact that Soleimani's no longer there places a lot more power in the hands of, you know, um, Sinwar or um, Nasrallah. Yeah, and I mean, that's a very dangerous precedent um, because Iran, even though they cause a lot of instability um, in the region, 
Uh, I think it's maybe it feels more safe to have like a state calling the shots than like a, a militia. Um, and especially when you consider the presence of like U.S. bases in Iraq and Syria and how mm-hmm. attacks against that can escalate things you never know of. Um, one of these militias is going to do something crazy just on their own that it's going to really escalate things. It's right. kind of like a ticking time bomb. I know? think also the last two months, not to get into my own personal opinions too much, I think the last two months have been a complete indictment of the of Trump's decision to kill Soleimani as well. Mm. Because the American people were told Soleimani's a bad guy, he's done bad things, there need to be repercussions for Iran or else they're going to do more bad things. By killing Soleimani, he's a negative actor in the region, we're going to bring more stability, we're going to punish Iran for adventurism abroad. And like the entire Trump, uh, the entire approach to Iran throughout the Trump administration, it was a complete failure. We had the worst attack ever by an Iranian proxy after the killing of Soleimani. Iranian proxies have stepped up hugely across the region mm-hmm. in terms of these regular sort of simmering attacks against U.S. and U.S. allies. So I think the, the, the lines we were fed about the killing of Soleimani, they're, they're being completely disproven on like a daily basis in the region. Well, this is the thing about foreign policy as a whole, especially in a place like the Middle East. And it's what Biden says about his campaign all the time. Don't compare me to the almighty, compare me to the alternative. Sure, Soleimani might have had a lot of problems. And I'm not going to take a stance on this. No, he was, he was an aggressive but, guy yeah, throughout the region. I'm not, I'm not going to take a stance on the decision. But one of the things you have to consider is killing one man does not mean the whole institution yeah. is dead. Mm-hmm. And who's going to replace that man? You, you need- and arguably in this case, that yeah. replacement to Suleiman's system it's arguably a bigger threat for U.S. interests. I mean, I think you need an entire you need an entire approach. You can't have what the Trump administration did, which was just hit the Iranians over and over again, hoping at some point it would work. Mm. If that strategy was workable, great. Maybe it would have worked out differently. But it, if you understand the regime, I think you understand that that's not the way um, that's not the way you're going to get the Iranians to do what you want is by hitting them again and again. Saddam Hussein tried that for about a decade, um, <laughs> and it didn't work. Um, so you need like an actual strategy, not just an assassination here and an assassination there whenever you feel like it. And that, is, that strategy needs to be workable. And I think the, I mean, and, and Biden has a tough hand there too. His strategy vis-a-vis the Iranians isn't all that different, and it hasn't worked all that well. So far it hasn't, uh, besides trying to rejoin the JCPOA, well, which we should talk worked. about, which has yeah. not worked. But let's talk about that, let's put that on back, the back burner, because we're talking about Iraq, the Wild West uh, of this conflict. Um, Iraqi Kurdistan is in an interesting situation, mm-hmm. and I want to go to our resident uh, <laughs> Kurdistan expert, Diego, because uh, within Iraqi Kurdistan, there are a lot of different political factions, yeah. and some of them do receive different degrees of support mm-hmm. from Tehran. Well, not so much within, it, it's more just in Iraq. The, the main presence of the Iranian proxies um, as concerns Kurdistan is actually in the disputed territories. Um, so this is like Syria. So there's Turkey. Iraqi Kurdistan, uh, which is like constitutionally autonomous, yeah. um, and there's federal Iraq, and in the but there's like Kurdish majority areas or like historically Kurdish areas in between that the Kurds claim, and in the offensive against ISIS, um, the the Kurdistan regional government took a lot of these areas. Um, and then after a 2017 independence referendum, the Iraqi army pushed back. But then as a result, there's kind of this like zone of like disputed territory where they don't really agree on who has jurisdiction. Um, and there's a lot of Iranian proxy forces. And now um, Tehran does not um, have an interest in the continuation of the Kurdistan regional governments because they are very, in general, very pro-West, especially the dominant part of the KDP. Mm-hmm. Um, and Iran was very against the um, KDB being or the KRG being more independent, uh, especially around like energy laws and militarily and these sorts of things. So we have seen um, it has been a bit quiet recently, especially since Saudi normalization um, started. But um, before that, that we saw quite often Iranian direct Iranian um, at, like. Uh, aerial attacks on the KRG, especially the capital air bill, and more commonly um, attacks by the PMF, Iranian proxies. Um, at the same time, uh, Iraqi politics, I think, is placed in an interesting spot because the PMF, the Popular Mobilization Forces, or, or units, sometimes people call it the PMU, the Iranian, Iranian proxy force, they have their own political parties. Um, and we have um, provincial elections coming up. And uh, Muqtada al-Sadr, who, while he retired from 
retired from politics. He might come back. He usually does. Um, he um, he still has a lot of sway over certain blocks of the, the Shia voters. And he told his supporters to boycott the elections, which he did in the past. And then since his supporters, like since his party and like supporters boycotted um, like the government, the Iran box backed parties won, and Saddam was like, "Oh no!" And I was like, "What did you think was going to happen?" <laughs> um, so it's it's interesting because it could cause us to maybe see a victory for Iran backed parties like Al Maliki's Dawa party. Mm. Not all Iran backed parties are axis of resistance. Sure, like Maliki's sure. party isn't, but the the, P- the PMF parties are, of course. So it, and if they end up winning in this election. Um, they w- it, w- it could be a president to predict predict what more like national elections would look like, and even with these elections, uh, the um, provincial councils have authority to appoint and dismiss governors, and they have a lot of authority over like the budget. So it'd be pretty important. And I, I'm it's on December eighteenth. The elections. I'm very interesting to see who who wins out there. Sure. Um, ending on I think a subject that I personally going into Biden's administration thought would be a major talking point, but hasn't been, the nuclear deal. Yeah. So, of course, this fell apart when, uh, after President Trump withdrew the United States from the nuclear deal. Biden has said he really wants to get back into it, but there has been no tangible, demonstrable progress. So how does this play into the axis of resistance angle? Sure, yeah. I mean, the, the nuclear issue is a big part of the way Iran approaches the entire region, right? Iran wants total security for itself. It sees you know, uh, various actors across the region is fundamentally hostile. And it not only wants security for itself, it wants to be able to project across the entire region, right? Um, The nuclear question is a big part of that because no one should really believe, I think, that if they achieved a nuclear weapon, the Iranians would freely launch it. You know, I mean, I think... But a lot of people do. I mean, some people do. um, But I... And I think, you know, you you should take that possibility somewhat seriously, but I don't think it's likely that they would. I mean, uh, the Iranian regime is pretty ideological, but they're not, like, anti... Which goes into what we were just I mean, are, are, is, is the Iranian regime any more ideological than Putin's regime or the North Koreans who have nuclear weapons and they saber rattle with them, but they're, I, I think it's pretty unlikely that they Some ever people use them. think so, but I'm inclined with you. I think that they are more pragmatic. I think the, the, the more significant repercussions for the uh, region if the Iranians achieve a nuclear weapon is that they will be emboldened to be much more aggressive because it becomes much more difficult to imagine how another state in the region would punish them. So that means... You know, right now, they've got these mobilization forces in Iraq and Syria and stuff like that, like Diego was talking about. Maybe the Iranians feel confident enough in their regional position that they get their PMFs to launch like a coup in Iraq. Yeah. Like that becomes much more possible if the Iranians feel secure enough because they have a nuclear weapon yeah. in their pocket. And that's bad. Yeah. And I don't think, I, I, I don't want to go on too long, but I don't think we're, I don't think we're going to be able to get back into a JCPOA type organization. Mm. The, the international environment and the domestic environments in the U.S. and uh, Iran have changed too much, I think. Yeah, right, yeah. because it's, it's said, you know, when you're learning international relations, it's said that the highest form of entity is the state. But in a sense, there are two levels of state. There's a regular state and then there's a nuclear state. And yeah, a nuclear definitely. state does carry it, a lot more it weight. Becomes it, it, it becomes a it bit untouchable. It becomes a bit untouchable, right? Yeah, you don't want to face those nuclear um, weapons. I mean, my concern is not so much in, like, the ends of them having a nuclear weapon, more like what's going to happen in the pursuit, because I don't think that, like, Israel is going to let that happen very, like... No, I, I think Israel would sooner in try, try to invade Iran than let them get a Yeah, I mean, they're, they're so. going to launch, or like... an airstrike campaign, at the like, very least. I could easily see Israel open, like, a war against Iran if um, they, they are seriously on the verge of doing it, even, like... Like, even though they have seen some, Iran and Saudi Arabia have seen some reproachment, Saudi Arabia really doesn't want them to have... I don't, I don't think the Saudis would attack them, but I don't think the like, Saudis would be mad if the Israelis well, did. the Saudis aren't going to attack them because yeah. they suck at fighting. That's true. That's true. <laughs> I think a big part of the reason why Saudi Arabia is pursuing detente with the Iranians is they're like, wow, we lost the war in Yemen, even though we were fighting, like... These random guys who like had flip flops and Kalashnikovs, and we supposedly are like the world's greatest petro state, and we could not beat them because it turns out our regular military sucks. <laughs> and they like tried to bully Qatar into stop doing yeah. the various things the Qataris were doing, mm-hmm. and they couldn't get that to work. Like MBS's foreign policy has not been super successful, I think. Um, you now he can't normalize with Israel too, which would have been a major accomplishment yes. for him. But I, I don't see a situation where Iran is like on the verge of getting nuclear weapons, which is not like insane regional instability as a result of that. 
Alrighty, folks. Um, that does it for our panel today mm -hmm. on the Iranian Axis of Resistance. Had a great conversation in sunny Baltimore. Uh, <laughs> and uh, we hope you all have a good one. It's going to be time now to spin the globe. And the oh. pin has dropped on Thailand. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell that we sometimes script these episodes? <laughs> uh, we'll be covering Thailand uh, no less on the same week as its national holiday and in a year where it has faced elections that turned out really unusually. The guy who essentially won the most seats in parliament who was expected to be the next prime minister was not able to do so due to institutional restrictions against anti-military parties. But we'll go into that in more detail in that episode on Thailand. Pindrop World News is produced by myself, AJ Camacho, alongside Diego Austin and Nicholas Castillo. The chief producers of this episode were Diego Austin and Nicholas Castillo. I am AJ Camacho, your anchor at Pindrop as well. Pindrop World News was created by Ian Kearns. And please make sure to check your podcast app and YouTube next week to hear the latest news, insights, and analysis surrounding Thailand. Kapkun Krap. That's how you say thank you in Thai, I think. There you go. Kapkun Krap to YouTube. If you're a girl, you say Kapkun Kra and not Krap. We might have, yeah. our fun fact might have to do with the Thai language. We'll see. <laughs>